Hi, and welcome back to Unsighted, the internet's least reliable English lit podcast. I'm Jean-Tel. And I'm Amy. And Amy is very warm. But first, if it's your first time listening, hello, welcome. If you just want to hear about Henry V by Shakespeare, you're in the right place. If you want to hear about any context to what we're about to talk about, I really recommend going back three episodes and listening from our Richard II episode because you are landing right in the middle of a series on Shakespeare's Henriette. You're landing in medias res, (laughs) and that's not going to be great for you. I mean, it'll make sense if you just want to hear about the play. Yeah. We're also going to talk about the other plays a little bit, but it will make sense, I promise. Also, the other episodes are funny. How are you doing, Amy? Um, I'm fuck shit. Welcome to the episode. It's hot. <laughs> it's 31 degrees in my apartment. It is something like 34 outside. And for our American listeners, what is that in Fahrenheit? Above 80. Okay. I think 26 is 80. And then it's one degree per degree after that. 93. We're in the 90s, guys. Okay. We are in the 90s here in worst case Ontario. And I'm, I'm so hot. Throwback. And like the heat waves breaking tomorrow and then it's going to be like a nice 20 degrees for the rest of like the next two weeks. And I'm like, I'm not putting in the AC just for that. I'm so extremely sorry. Also, I'm not putting in AC when it's so hot. I'm back in my sweaters. I'm about to take off my shirt. I mean, it's an audio (laughs) medium. So (laughs) shall we get into the episode? Yeah, yeah, so hot. Okay. So I have, um, they're not really peer reviews. They're just kind of like commentary that I thought was fun that I wanted to bring to the class. Okay, the class is here for this. I have material for later. Okay. I say that like it's a joke. Like a, like a stand-up, because it kind of is. You'll see. You always have the best material for later. I am the fall staff. Okay, the first one is from James Anderson at Unabashed James on Twitter. Holla. Who said, the part at the end of the play where they say, hey, the current monarch rules of um, the last play. This is a part of the last play. If you listen to our last episode, Shakespeare is like, hey, the current monarch rules. Queen language. Queen language. (laughs) I didn't get it as a written down medium. And again, if this is your first time listening, this is a regular segment that we have done forever that is called clean language. Yes. That has been in every episode since the first one, of course. Of course. The second comment is also from a James. James Teller at Lexapro underscore Luther on Twitter, (laughs) who said, if the scenes with Falstaff are filler, it's some of the best filler in the canon. Not to go all Harold Bloom, God forbid, but Falstaff is pretty great. And then he mentioned Chimes at Midnight, which I looked up, which seems to be like a Falstaff-centric movie Ooh. and looks really fun. We'll have to add it to our list of Henriad pop culture because I watched The Prince by Abigail Thorne, who is also known as Philosophy Tube on the YouTubes and Nebula, and it was a lot of fun. And it's all about Henry IV, part one. I love that you're bringing trans plays to us on Pride Month. Can I also have a suggestion? I suggested it on Instagram, but also for those of you guys who don't follow us on Instagram, yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> cool people who did cool stuff, which is by a network that shall not be named, but is also hosted by Margaret Killjoy. Man, what a killjoy. Yeah, she's hilarious. Also someone who is trans. She did a four-part episode series on the Stonewall riots. Oh. Because cool people do cool stuff. Cool people do do cool stuff. So that's my rec. 
for pride. Fun. Yeah. And the prince. And the prince. Yeah. And then other wrecks, if you want to learn more about the play, looping back into <laughs> what we're talking about today. So there's the prince, there's the king, which is on Netflix with Timothy Chalamet. Timothy Chalamet. And Robert Pattinson. I forgot he was in that. <laughs> I know. We all need to forget. And there's also the one we've been recommending for this whole series is the Hollow Crown series, which is very, very, very excellent and almost a word-for-word adaptation of every play. Yeah. So today we are going to delve, dive, dove, drip. You know words. It's hot. You're an English major. We're going to go right into Henry V, also known as Hal Becomes a Big Boy. Yes, that's important to note because I would like you to keep in mind through this whole summary that this was in Henry IV, part one and two, Rowdy Hal. Like, Rowdy Hal was hanging out in brothels. He was drinking all day. He was, like, doing fake robberies with his friends. He was pulling pranks. He was eavesdropping and doing disguises and doing comedy of errors things. And now he is the king. So just everything he does from here on out, just remember that in the back of your head. Chantel, why do we always cover Shakespeare plays during heat waves? If I had a nickel for every time we covered a Shakespeare play in a heat wave, I'd have two nickels, which isn't a lot, but it's weird that it happened twice. It's weird that it happened twice. I had like a weird like Shakespeare heat wave freaking me out. I see that I'm going to have a really easy time keeping you on track today. (laughs) That's why I brought some content. Okay. It's hot. And now we also have to compare this version to The King with Timothy Chalamet because that has kind of ruined this Henry for me, but we'll get into it. Okay. So to summarize, so this is the only play in the Henry ad that has a chorus. And when I say a chorus, I do not mean a chorus of voices. No. I mean one person on the stage who is basically like a narrator. Amy's going to talk more about that. Yeah. So let's start by understanding what a chorus is, shall we? Let's shall. Chris Baldick. That's not a good name. Yep, but it's still fun. (laughs) In the Dictionary of Literary Terms defines a chorus as a group of singers distinct from the principal performers in a dramatic or musical performance. In classical Greek tragedy, a chorus of 12 or 15 masked performers would sing with dancing movements, a commentary on the action of the play, interpreting its events from the standpoint of traditional wisdom. In some Elizabethan play, like Shakespeare's Henry V, a single character called the chorus introduces a setting and action. Such choruses can often be found in Seneca tragedies such as were many of Shakespeare's play. Thank you, Amy. That was very helpful. Oh, no. So, the chorus in the prologue serves the metatheatrical aspect of its role very nicely. So, yeah, basically the chorus in this is just to be like, yo, guys, um, I know that you're about to watch a play where Henry is the shit, but just FYI, he is... He's like super cool and rad and everyone loves him and the French are dumb. Yes. So I have a thesis about the chorus and it's a simplistic one, but it's kind of still fun. So bear with me here. So Henry V is a play that quite frankly doesn't really match up with the rest of the plays we've read up to date. Pointed look. Pointed look. I mean, it has more of a comedic feel to it. It deals more with relationships and courting than the others. And even more strikingly, it has a chorus. Now, I posit that the chorus, trademark, in Henry V serves as a metatheatrical device that situates the play in its historical context. In belonging to both the audience and the play text, the chorus is able to bridge the gap between the historical events and their portrayal on stage. It is invaluable to the play because it sets up the limitations and possibilities of the stage in recreating history. Oh, that's very 
very accurate and apt. I know. I had a seminar about it. Content. I've included the chorus in my summary, but you can like interrupt me if you have more to say about it. Oh, I have five pages to say about it. I'm sure that you do. So we open on the chorus. We open every act on the chorus. So in the first act, the chorus pops up and he's like, okay, I know that we're on a stage and there's only going to be a few people like our actors were really limited and stuff. And the stage is pretty small, you know, is Shakespeare. But just imagine in your head, these battles are like so epic. Okay, good. It's a method theatrical device because it brings <laughs> forth firstly the physical setting of the stage, but it also like brings in like, you know, the idea of imagination. Like he tells you, like the chorus or she, they, um, they're like, can this cockpit hold the vast fields of France. You know, like they tell you like, okay, so you got to figure it out. Like you got to pretend that this is France. Like you got to suspend your disbelief, you know, which is fun. Which is something people are not at all prepared to do when they show up to a play. (laughs) Glad they told us to do that. They're like, yeah, this is a history. This should be pretty (laughs) factual. So not only is he like setting up the action of the play, but also commenting on the fact that there will be fights, um, such as with the term cockpit, which is kind of (laughs) funny. He goes on to discuss how we must think when we talk of horses that you see them. You know, there's no horses in the Globe Theater. (laughs) Fucking pretend they're there. Which is funny. So they're, uh, the whole like concept of this like Shakespeare's plays being like Senecan strategies is important because those plays were certainly like they're closet dramas. So they're meant for recitation more than actual stage performance. Oh, so it's actually good that we're reading them. Yes, in this case. Yeah. So it's calling on the classical way of doing plays and how if it was a recitation, then of course, imagination was an important part. So when the chorus says, suppose within the girdle of these walls are now confined two mighty monarchies, Mm -hmm. which is important to the War of the Roses later on, he's telling us what to expect and how to imagine the stage. The chorus bids us travel in imagination to far off wonderful scenes, but each such cork invitation by making the process self-conscious simultaneously keeps us in mind of our actual location in the theater, which is fun too. Yeah. Because he's telling you, pretend, but also you are not actually here, which is fun. Yeah, the fact that they're like, please suspend your disbelief kind of like brings you out of it and makes you stop suspending your disbelief. Understandably, the chorus was mostly cut out of every movie version. Which is sad. Because... You don't need to suspend your disbelief that much. Which I think is like one of the things like you miss from this play. And I think that's why personally I found The King with Timothy Chalamet to kind of like fall on the wrong side of where I wanted to fall. Okay. is because the chorus doesn't exist. The chorus makes some appearances in Henry the in the Hollow Crown series. Okay, yeah, that's fair. Because the Hollow Crown is faithful. It is very top tier. I do love how they included the touch of Harry in the night thing. But shall we hop into the rest of Act 1 past the chorus? Yes. Okay, so we actually open on um, Henry has been considering a war with France. So this is King Henry V. He wants to redirect money from the church towards supporting the army and helping the poor and also obviously pocketing a little bit. Who's kidding themselves? And the clergymen obviously do not want this because, you know, they have kind of got filthy rich off of this church money. So they're like coming up with this plot where they're like, you know what? Yes, I think you should go be distracted in France. Don't worry about this bill. You can worry about it later. In fact, we'll raise the money for you to go have this war in France and just give it to you. Don't worry about taking away the money to support the church because we'll just give it back from donations from the people and then keep your money. 
money. Anyway, it's all good. Don't worry about it. Multi-level marketing schemes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love it. Uh, so the Archbishop of Canterbury gives this long-winded explanation to Henry about why he does have a claim to the throne, which plays very fast and loose with like family trees and inheritance and like the rules to justify who is the king of which country because in England you can pass the monarchy through the matriarchal line but in France it's only through the patriarchal line so Henry has a claim to the throne of France according to England's monarchy rules but not according to France's monarchy rules which is where it matters like that's like going to your neighbor's house and like getting in their shower and then being like why the fuck are you in my shower and they're like well in my house I shower (laughs) and they're like yeah but this is my house (laughs) it's like when I'm driving and it's raining and my mom's sitting in the passenger seat being like oh I hate driving in the rain I'm like you're not driving she's like yeah but I hate driving in the rain I'm like again I am the one who is driving you are sitting over there you can simply close your eyes and then you are not in the rain she's like I hate driving in the rain that's what he's doing with the French throne yes or like you know I I need to keep playing with this because it's fun (laughs) what's one more you know the all recipe comments where they're like I omitted the flour the sugar and the chocolate chips so I just had butter and I put it on the pan and then it melted I don't understand what happened It's like you you took out all the ingredients for the chocolate chip cookies, <laughs> except the butter. I don't understand where this recipe is getting all these good reviews from because I made the recipe, but I substituted every single ingredient for a different ingredient that I had in my kitchen and then it didn't taste good. So I don't know what's up with that. Ooh, okay. I feel like we're getting farther and farther away from what this actually is. The point is... Uh, No, he doesn't have a claim to the throne. So then Henry's like, you know what? I do have a claim to the throne, but here's the thing. What if the Scottish invade while I'm away with the whole army? Like, what if they take the opportunity of England being defenseless and invade? Because that's a thing they've been doing. And the Archbishop of Canterbury, brilliantly, oh, such good ideas, this guy, comes up with, it'll be fine. (laughs) He's like, just take a quarter of your army to France. That's a good idea. And you can leave three quarters here to defend England and you can take this teeny tiny army to attack this giant country that is much bigger and more populous than us. Let me tell you how Adam Court went. <laughs> and Henry listens to this plan, this brilliant plan. And he's like, yes, that makes yeah. sense. That is what I shall do. Yeah. So um, there's some French ambassadors waiting outside. Henry calls them in and he's like, all right, what do you got for me? And they're like, we have a message from the Dauphin. The Dauphin is the prince of France, basically. He's the king's son. He's the actual heir to the French throne. And he He says, obviously, that Henry has no claim to the throne. He also implies that he's too young and inexperienced and irresponsible to even have a throne, which he didn't need to throw in. And then he sends a gift and they open it up and the gift is (gasps) tennis balls. So this scene kind of throws me for a loop because like reading it in Shakespeare's original, you're like, okay, this reaction seems justified, but I'll tell you what happens in The King first. In the movie The King, Timothy Chalamet gets this tennis ball and he's like, oh, isn't this nice? The Dauphin wants to remind me of my youth and to stay youthful and innocent and to keep my spark and stuff, whatever. And everyone's like, this is such an insult. You need to go to war. He's like, I'm not an idiot. I'm not going to go to war over tennis balls, which seems like a reasonable reaction, right? Yes. And then you look at Shakespeare's Henry, who, okay, have you seen Beauty and the Beast, Bell's Enchanted World? No, Bell's Magical World. No. Beauty and the Beast, BMW. <laughs> no, okay, I have well, not. In it, I haven't seen it either, but apparently there's a scene where Bell brings this like injured, 
bird bird back to the castle and she's like we're gonna take care of this bird now and the beast is like a bird and then just ruins all his character development up to that point that's fun that sounds like something yeah. disney would do i'm <laughs> guessing yeah sounds about right well that is what henry does in shakespeare's play he's like a ball and he like freaks out yeah i think like play hal like play henry is a bit more like he's a bit still strung up i feel like from his um fight with hotspur because you he know? absorbed hotspur's qualities of being hot-headed by killing him because that's how it works yeah we thought you know falstaff got the virtue and henry got the <laughs> hot-headedness fabulous i love that for us fabulous oh we love a callback joke okay so this is what henry says okay. he says and tell the pleasant prince this mock of his hath turned his balls to gunstones and his soul shall stand sore charged for the wasteful vengeance that shall fly from them for many a thousand widows shall this mock mock out of their dear husbands mock mothers from their sons mock castles down and tell the dauphin his jest will savor but of shallow wit when thousands weep more than did laugh at it wow because he's not messing around <laughs> yeah he went you wanted to fuck around let's fucking find out <laughs> honestly and uh honestly what else do you expect from the english well yeah that's kind of their whole motto eh? isn't it like fuck around find out what's a motto i don't know what's the motto with you <laughs> thank you for doing that with me i love you so much okay um we're already in act two i think yeah and i have something about the second appearance of the chorus please tell me about the chorus okay so it serves as a commentary on the affairs that are going on it discusses the issues between france and england and also tells you who is treasonous basically like this play doesn't really have a lot of like finding out it's a lot of tell not show honestly yeah it is you're so right i argue that the chorus needs to do that because of the length of the play so sitting at around uh 3400 lines the play is quite long and much is happening so having a character tell you what is going on sets up the context the next act needs without any extra bias so within the play obviously not everyone is always truthful but the chorus is because he's like this omniscient narrative type and telling the audience about the traitors it makes it so that our interest is less about the eventual outcome of which we are assured than its technique its self-conscious theatrical means so basically like you're more interested about how they're gonna do it than what's actually gonna happen which is kind of fun i kind of like it's like reading the last line of a book you know you know what's gonna happen right like it's when you watch a like world war ii movie and you're like you know that the allies are gonna win yeah but what's gonna happen in this movie yeah like what nuances are we gonna get yeah so this play also gets angry at the disruption of the unities of the play although a Senecan type of play that doesn't mean that the unities of aristotle are completely out the window the chorus once again retakes its role as your friend and tells you there is the playhouse now there you must sit and thence to france we shall continue convey you safe and bring you back charming the narrow seas to give you gentle pass it's at the same time i'm listening to you say this yeah and i'm like man we were so smart once <laughs> i know i'm like reading this and i'm like jeez where did this all go so it's at the same time explaining that the playhouse contains all the action of the play but that even though it imaginarily moves the audience is okay it's okay <laughs> yeah the audience is okay almost <laughs> in a way to remind you not to get too worked up though the chorus through the chorus you get the main action and place of the play while gently being guided through history 
Cool. So this chorus comes in. Same chorus. Yeah. I don't know why I said this chorus. Well, this instance. This chorus appearance. Yeah. He comes in and he tells, I'm saying he because all actors in Shakespeare's era were yeah. men. Um, yeah. So I just I assume. say he because I think it was just like the actors are usually males still in the like in the proper stage adaptations that they make. Because of sexism. Because of sexism. Yeah. Cool. So the chorus tells us that there are some bribed noblemen on the English side yeah. who plan to kill Henry before he leaves. The treasonous people. So those are Richard, the Earl of Cambridge, Henry Lord Scrope of Masham, Masham. and Sir Thomas Grey of Northumberland. And then forget about that. We're back at the tavern. <laughs> Do you remember the tavern? The tavern, our old friend from Henry the Fourth. The tavern of the stealing and the ball staffing and the everything else. And the brothelness of it all. Yes. Yeah. The, yeah, okay. the shenanigans tavern. So we're back at shenanigans tavern where Falstaff and Hal used to hang out and we meet up with some of their old friends. Bros meeting with bros. Yeah. From back before Henry got the stick up his butt. Yeah. So the two that are of most import right now are Lieutenant Bardolf and Corporal Nim. And then who comes in? Oh no, it's Pistol. Pistol. We know how rowdy and bad news Pistol is that the mistress quickly of the tavern hates and never wants in her establishment. He's here. Um, so Nim <sighs> gets into pistol. a fight because he was going to marry Mistress Quickly, but guess who married her instead? Is it Falstaff? It's Pistol. Oh, no. Wait. wait. <laughs> what? If you're looking at this and thinking, hey, uh, what? Yes, you're correct. <laughs> so is this like an enemies to lover situation? <laughs> I think it is. I would love to read a play about like what happened in between Mistress Quickly saying absolutely I will never in a million years have Pistol in my establishment do not bring him in here to literally getting married to him that would be the greatest rom-com ever Ken at Glenn Nuzzles you want to write something? <laughs> um, it's in the public domain so their fight gets broken up and then Falstaff's page boy comes in and tells us that Falstaff is very sick and he is declining incredibly quickly. Everyone pretty much agrees that it's Henry's fault. They don't explain why, but like I would assume that it's because Henry broke his heart and he's dying of a broken heart. Like Henry's not his best best buddy anymore and gave him that restraining order in the last play. And now he's like, I am worm food. This is a good recurring joke. Thanks, Glenn. Yes. So this happens in another scene, but I'll just tell you now because it doesn't need to be in another scene. Falstaff just dies. And then everyone's like, oh no, Falstaff's dead. R.I.P. And then and the guys go to war. So meanwhile... Over Falstaff dying? I don't think so. Well, they were going to go to war anyway. <laughs> Yeah. Lieutenant Bardolph and Corporal Nim. Right. If you recall. Yes. Uh, so I don't know if they got like drafted because they don't want to really seem to be there. I don't know if there was like a choice, you know? Like I don't yeah. think it was like a draft or like a volunteer. I think you just like, you're the king's men, let's go. Like we've seen guys get drafted for wars in this series already because Falstaff drafted a bunch of idiots. Yeah, but it's not like a draft like we know the draft. I don't. It's kind of just like, hey, you're here. Come on. This is where we're going now. Here's a sword. Yeah. Like like, these people were never under the impression that they would never go to war. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, they're kind of like all low-key reservists farm hands. Yeah. I guess. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not a historian. And it seems like they expect a lot of deaths, especially in the front lines of the battles, because it's so, like, hand-to-hand mm. -hand combat yeah. type situation. So uh, it seems like a lot of these guys that they pick are just, like, cannon fodder to distract and kind of offset the size of the other guys' troops. 
But yeah. Well, yeah. War's very dark. <laughs> so back on the like shore when Henry's about to leave, I guess, he's preparing to sail to France and he has figured out the plot against him. He does some trickery to get the guys who are trying to betray him to be like, yeah, people don't deserve mercy. And then he's like, cool, you're all going to be executed. And then he sees this like discovery of his as a sign that I am on the right track instead of seeing like the imminent betrayal that almost happened as a sign that like, hey, maybe I'm not on the right track. I feel like you could have taken that either way. And he just did whatever was most convenient. Yeah. A man of convenience if I've ever seen one. <laughs> so in France. In France. Charles the Sixth. I know what Roman numerals are. And his son, the Dauphin, are talking about the war. And we learn that the king does not share Robert Pattinson's yay war attitude. By the way, the Dauphin in The King is played by Robert Pattinson with really weird hair. Our pats and Timothée Chalamet. <laughs> the duo. A power you, duo. You didn't know you didn't want. <laughs> That's very accurate. Okay, I need to tell everyone this because I think it's funny. In an episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I'm pretty sure it's the Night Chef episode, they're talking about Twilight and Jake goes, I've seen Twilight. Robert Pattinson goes, ha ha ha, I want to turn into a bat, which is funny because then he becomes Batman later on. <laughs> It's so funny. I listen to that show to fall asleep, um, for those who don't know me personally. And every time that comes on, I laugh and then I can't fall asleep again because it's funny. So um, basically the Dauphin of France is like, oh, I want to turn into a bat. Yeah, exactly. Actually. Yeah. That's it. That's it. That's He's the play. He's about to turn into a bat shit crazy. <laughs> yep. So they're, they're sitting there and uh, I don't know how you would be able to tell this was written by English people, but they're sitting here and they're like, wow, the English are so like strong and cool and good at fighting and they're definitely gonna kick our butts even though there's like five of them and we should be concerned no one eats eggs like gaston what <laughs> no one fights like gaston oh okay <laughs> jesus Christ. i might be having some heat stroke have some water uh so exeter shows up from henry's side to chat to these guys from france and he's basically like you're right he is good at fighting and he's gonna kick your butts basically like what they just said and he's here he's here in france right now and just last ditch effort do you want to just give up your crown right now so that we don't have to fight and if you don't he'll kick all your butts and it's gonna be really embarrassing for you and they're like yeah we'll take the second option the one that's really embarrassing for us uh so oh 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 wait i just want to pause here because i have my essay okay so what exeter actually says is he'll strike you down like a jove and i argue in my seminar presentation that throughout this play Henry is referred to as like various deities through the chronology of Western religion. Mm -hmm. So first he starts out as Jove and then he's the Old Testament God and then he's the New Testament God. Yes. And we presented on the same day. Yeah, yeah, we did. And uh, I don't think that Shakespeare was a Lancastrian, but he really goes hard for Henry V. Well, he wasn't a Yorkist either. Oh, okay. He was a... Tudor. Tudor. Thank you. Which is like Lancaster light, really. I was going to say Plantagenet. I'm like, that's not correct. Like, theoretically, it's like bringing both the York and the Lancasterian lines together. But like, really, it's just the Lancasterian line. All right. Let's be real. I am a Lancastrian. Not same. No, you're a dirty, dirty Yorkist. Yep. So in Act 3, 
the chorus is back. Would you like to talk about the chorus? Yes. Or would you like me to say what they do first? You can say what they do and then I will tell you about meta. Okay, so the chorus comes back and tells us that Henry is so impressive, you guys. And as soon as he started his attack, the king was like, oh, this is going to be so embarrassing for us. And he offered a deal immediately where Henry could have some of the dukedoms in France and also Princess Catherine's hand in marriage if he just leaves now. And Henry is like, no, I'm so strong and cool. I'm going to beat you no matter what. So no deal, yo. What's fun here also, like the chorus kind of like woos the audience. And I think that's important to note because Hal over here is going to try to woo Kate at a later date. Yeah. So they're kind of like foils in a weird way. Anyways. Oh, I'll get into foils. In the third part... The chorus goes even further into the realm of the meta, mainly by telling the audience things that have yet to happen. Suppose that you have seen the well-appointed king at Hampton Pier. In this, the chorus is telling the audience to believe that they have seen something. Normally, things like this would be recounted in the text by like a messenger or something, but in this case, our buddy, the chorus, says it for our benefit. In saying, oh, but do think you stand upon the ravage and behold a city, the chorus is directly implicating the audience as a participatory audience, one that is being told to eke out our performance with your mind. It's like this constant reminder that this is a play and that as an audience, you're here to see it and participate in it. The chorus is also setting the setting by talking about how Phoebus is fanning, i.e. that the sun is rising and that there is an invisible but creeping wind. The chorus can call attention to the play's inherent theatrical limitations at the same time that it invites us to revel in theatricality. And the play can show the human weakness of its hero at the same time that it celebrates his greatness. All things that unless said will very be hard if not impossible to have the audience understand so the chorus is there to make sure that its audience knows its participatory place in the play you know what the chorus is tell me more the chorus is like a combo hype man uh-huh and uh those like meditation guides where they're like imagine that you're on a beach the water is flowing over your hands as you stretch them out into the ocean. The sun is setting and its light is warm upon your face. It's like, imagine <laughs> that the king of England, our main boy, Henry V, is on a beach and it's full of blood because he's killed some people. Because, you know, people tried to kill him. <laughs> no, But they didn't though, I, did they? No, now I want to see this play done like word for word Everything for everything, but Seth Rogen is the chorus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd pay to watch that. Yeah. I would pay cash money. I'd give money to a theater. Let's go fund me it. Okay, you think we can get Seth Rogen? Anyone want to go fund me the Seth Rogen adaptation of Henry V? He's Canadian, right? Yeah, I think so. I think we could swing this. I think it would be fun. Because we're Canadians, so all Canadians obviously would immediately do everything we say. Cool. So the course is done with that. We open the actual act on, we're in the middle of a siege on the like port-ish town in France, which is called Arfleur. Yeah. And Henry gives a pretty good speech. It's not his best speech of the play, but it's an all right speech to the troops. He says words. He says some words. It's all right. And then we go back to Nim Pistol and Bardolph is actually excited, but Nim Pistol and the boy that they're with, the 
Page Boy are like, eh, you know, they're just really mad about the whole thing. They're like, I'd just rather not be here, you know, I'd rather be home like drinking and stuff. Uh, so we're starting to see some dissension in the troops. Not too long after that, Alfleur surrenders. And that is because the French army has basically ditched them. They're like, we're not going to send anybody in time for it to be relevant to you. So you're on your own, buddy. Figure it out. Was it August? I don't know. Was it August? No. Okay, I'm curious now. But what happens is that all of... France is um, on vacation in August usually. Oh, maybe it was August when St. Crispin's Day. I, I think it's in September. October. Okay. So, maybe. you know, it's in the summer months. If it was a two month per, I don't know, war words. I almost said parade and then I was like, that's not right. That's okay. not the right word. Well, let's let's keep in mind that this is the Hundred Years War. So it's a hundred years. <laughs> yeah. So this specific war was like 14 years long. So oh my God. At some point it was August. At some point during the war. It was absolutely August at least 13 times. So Alfleur surrenders. Henry's plan is to use the city as the army's base of operations in France. So like, it was dumb of France not to protect this city. Now they have a base. Oh my fucking uh, god. What? Henry's army landed in northern France on the 13th of August, 1415. <gasps> carried by wow. a vast fleet. It was in August that they landed there, so it's entirely possible that they just went, you know what? Fuck it. We're on vacation. Vacances time. Vacances! So, then we get a mini scene where Catherine, the princess of France, is like, you know what? I might be needing to know some English soon. My dad seems to be ready to pimp me out at the first sign of trouble, so let's just figure out some words. Me and her, we are the same. <laughs> she asks her maid to teach her English and so we the audience get to go haha French accents are so funny <laughs> the French speakers in the audience will figure out why Catherine looks so offended uh, the English speakers might be like this seems like she's saying dirty words but what she is saying is like the words for foot which is she's pronouncing as it is foot which is like the French word foot yeah which is basically like I don't give a fuck well yeah it's part of that it's the replacement for fuck directly I think cool and then the other one I don't know what it's supposed to be she's pronouncing gown as count and I don't know what that is supposed to be in French it might be comb which is kind of like a stupid people oh okay but also it might be similar enough to like the c word in English mm, I don't think they would know that <laughs> I don't think like French nobility in the 1400s would know that. No, but the English looking at the stage would know what the C word is. Because the C word came out in the 1200s. So it was definitely known by the English. So there's that. Well, thank you. Thank you for going through that with me because I was like so lost. I got you, fam. Then we check back in with the rest of the French nobles. We're already in the castle. Why not? I like how this is like, <laughs> you know those episodes of like TV shows where they like have the house split in two and you just go from room to room to room to room but it's just like french nobility yeah <laughs> so um they're like oh no we were right the english are so good and amazing and unstoppable what do we do but in a french accent maybe if you weren't on vacances <laughs> king charles is like Ugh, i know i know what we'll do we'll send goddamn all of france to fight this guy and that's what they do they like gather all of france 
and they just send them. So now Henry's one quarter of his smaller army, I would presume, is going up against the entire French army. Wow, imagine. Imagine. Back to the English side. Oh no, Bardolph was so excited about the war, but he got done effed it up. He stole something from a church to sell. And the English side are like, even though we're invading France, we have to be nice to the French commoners and the church and stuff. So Bardolph gets sentenced to death. Oh no. Henry's lines say he's cool with it. And I can see it played either way because in the Hollow Crown series, Bardolph gets hanged. Henry sees him hanged. He has this flashback of like all the times he's hanging out with Bardolph and then out loud to the people. He's like, yes, it's good that you did that. We need to treat the French with respect and we can't tolerate people stealing their stuff. But like, obviously inside he's dying, but it could also be played that he's just like super cold and focused on justice and kind of ruthless, you know, like the Old Testament God, the just and wrathful God. So we get to act four. Yes. The chorus is back. The chorus is back. I will tell you what the chorus has done. So the chorus is there. They describe how the French are getting kind of cocky now and they're outnumbering the English five to one. So the armies are sitting there like divvying up the loot that they're going to get in their heads. Yeah. And then at the English camp, everyone thinks that they're going to die tomorrow. So Henry is going basically from group to group, like nobles, commoners, just general soldiers, cavalry, giving them like warmth and support. What the chorus says is a little touch of Harry in the night. He does. Which is fun and cute. So yeah, in its fourth installment, the chorus reprises its role as light bringer or remover, so to speak, setting the scene as one of the foul womb of the night, where the clock do crow and the clocks do toll. Toll? Toll. And the third hour of drowsy morning name. But the most important thing the chorus does for the audience here is that it gives insight into Harry as a person and as a leader by giving an insight into how Harry was with his troops, going from tent to tent, calling them brothers, friends, and countrymen. This is really important because it shows the compassion of a leader and applies itself nicely to the fact that he was described as having a largeness universal like the sun, touching everything it rules over. Basically like everything the light touches is ours. (laughs) Having the chorus, a larger than life character say this, is monumental. Henry is their son in the middle of despair. If it wasn't for this brilliant personality, they would have lost at Agincourt. The sun, like the sun? Like the holy sun? Yes. Like the son of God? Like Jesus? Well, no. The sun like the light. I know. But also like the son of God. I'm stealing your points for my points now. No, I agree. So there's more stuff later. But yeah, that's act four. So Henry has like gone from group to group. Yep. But now he is going to go incognito from group to group. Yes. So he borrows an old cloak to blend in among the regular soldiers who for some reason just don't recognize him at all. Even though one of them knows him personally, you know, kind of in the same way that Christ walked in common clothes among his followers, you would say. He did. So first, Henry goes to Pistol, who is, um, he's like, you know, you know Pistol. He's a rough dude. Yes. He's rough around the edges. Do you think that Henry's being portrayed as like godly here because the Tudor era we're kind of in at the moment, the Elizabethan era, has the monarch as the head of the church? Because the monarch is the direct link between the country and God. Yeah. I think that's exactly why. So Pistol is a big fan of Henry. He's rough around the edges, but he's like, yeah, Henry is rad. He's cool. Love him. And then he is like, but that Flewellen, that guy's such a dick. 
because who Fluellen is, is Fluellen is like the Welsh commander who ordered the execution of Bardolph and Pistol was friends with Bardolph. Yes, right. Henry is like, well, that's actually my cousin. And then Pistol like flips him the bird and leaves, which is kind of fun. It is kind of fun. It's very like celebrity incognito. Yeah. I like it. It's a very undercover boss. Yes, it's very undercover boss. It's precisely undercover boss. He undercover bosses them. My God. Fabulous. Great. Okay. So then he goes to a group that includes um, three people, but the most important is Michael Williams, who hates the king and thinks it's dumb that they're going to this fight and he doesn't want to die. Yeah, we stand. So Henry's like, actually, the king's like a really good guy and you should just give him a chance. And so they like throw down their gloves at each other and they're like, we're going to fight. If we both live through this tomorrow, we're going to duel tomorrow and it's going to be on like Donkey Kong, buddy. And they like (laughs) take each other's gloves and they're like, this is how we'll recognize each other because we don't know what faces are because I guess it's too dark to see because that's the only reason you would not recognize your king and talk smack about him to his face. Yeah, because if your king is Timothy Chalamet and you don't know that it's Timothy Chalamet, you have a problem. He's very pretty. (laughs) (laughs) And in the uh, Hollow Crown one, it's uh, who plays Loki? I don't know. Do you want me to look it up? No, it's fine. The guy who plays Loki. Everyone knows. Oh, Tom Hiddleston. Tom Hiddleston. In uh, the Hollow Crown, it's Tom Hiddleston. So, you know, good looking guy. Yeah. Harry is a good looking guy. Yeah. Canonically so. Everyone's like, that guy, good at fighting and hot. Those are his two attributes. I would have a beer with him and also have a shag with him. Because <laughs> they're British. The soldiers are like, I would have a beer with him and also have a queer with him. Yes. Happy pride. Happy pride. Um, so Henry is like, ha ha ha, that was wild. Anyway, I'm going to pray now. So he prays for the battle. And he asks God not to punish him for his father taking the crown. He's like, I'm not him. Please be nice. Thanks. That's why it's hollow in case you were wondering. You know, kind of like how Jesus prayed to God before the crucifixion, Mm. some would say. Yeah, except, you know, it's not how that pans out. So what we're saying is Henry is better than Jesus, Amy? That's kind of blasphemous. It's not very Catholic of you. It's not very Catholic of me. So the next morning, some nobles are realizing how outnumbered that they are. And one of them wishes that there were more men from England with them here. And Henry comes in and he overhears this. And he's like, you know what? No, you don't wish that. And he does this iconic speech, which is called the St. Crispin's Day speech. And he's like, if we die today, we all share a greater piece of the honor for there being less people here. And if we win, then we all share a greater piece of the glory and we'll be remembered for generations and everyone will say upon St. Crispin's Day, blah, 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 blah. So I just want to talk about like some of the depictions I've seen of this. Okay, because there's two major ones I think are relevant here, which is the Hollow Crown version with Tom Hiddleston and the Kenneth Branagh version. (sighs) Which are like as opposite as you can get with these because one line in the speech is we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, which makes it seem intimate. You know, like the chorus described that there's only a couple people on the stage. Yeah. Well, in the hollow crown, there's like eight people and they're all in a little circle and it's very intimate. Yeah. In Kenneth Branagh's version, he's saying this to the entire freaking army. He's like climbing on a hill, like yelling. He's brave hearting it. <laughs> he is. Kenneth Branagh fucking eternalizes every. <laughs> Why does he pick the longest ass fucking plays too? Like Hamlet and this. It's like they're long enough. We don't need you in it. I know. I kind of like the way that he does it because it makes Henry seem like kind of fake. Like kind of a fake ass bitch, wouldn't you say? Mm, Being like, we band of brothers, we happy few. When there's like 300 people that he's saying this to. Checks note, happy few. (laughs) We happy few. (laughs) 
<laughs> like he was rehearsing it in his tent and then he overheard like everyone saying it. He was like, oh, gotta revise. Oh, I, I don't know what to say here. Same thing. Same thing. Just roll with the punches. <laughs> they, they won't hear it. They're just gonna think that I'm saying we happy many. We band of brothers and cousins and uncles and sons and friends and neighbors and whatnot. We happy yous. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have a heat stroke. <laughs> so then they go to battle. I'm gonna skip over most of the battle because I just don't find battle scenes particularly interesting. Yeah, can it, Branna? Some people die. Some people are like, ah, you look super intimidating. I surrender myself as a prisoner. All the usual shtick. But we can tell generally it's going well for the English. It's always going well for the English until it isn't. Indeed. <laughs> Suddenly, right after Henry finds out that two of his closest nobles, the Band of Brothers, have died. The many few. The, <laughs> the many few. <laughs> yes. Um, he hears a scuffle on the French side. He's like, oh no, there's a scuffle. Something's happening. Some What's going on? And then he's like, kill everybody. And it's like, what? I beg your pardon? Like Falstaff dying wasn't enough to break him. But this, whew. He's still like reeling from the, like his friends are dead thing. Yeah. So I think that's why he's got this vengeful streak. Yeah. But like his best friend died and he was like, mm, eh. Like I'm not a military expert. No. But I am pretty sure this would be considered a dick move. Yeah. But then it's okay because we realize the French have done an even more dick move. Sent their entire country to die. They sent their entire country to die. And they also snuck into the English camp while all the army was away and they murdered all the page boys, the children. Oh. So all their, all the kids are dead now. Not good. So that's bad. And Henry's like, yep, yeah, kill everybody. And then a friend French messenger comes in and he's like, you won. And Henry's like, we won, we won, we won, we won. Like in Hamilton. Yeah. I was going to say like, don't take the bullets out your gun. Don't shoot until you see the white of their eyes. You know? <laughs> yeah. So yay, we won. That's yep. cool. Well, it's a pretty grand moment, you would say. Yeah. Some would say the climax of the play. Mm. Some would say a, a moment you should not immediately deflate with a comedic scene. <laughs> Tension. You want to know who doesn't care about that? Shakespeare. Our friend Shakespeare. So Henry sees Michael Williams. Michael Williams from last night. Recall the glove man, Michael Williams. Michael Williams survives, does not die. He survived. He is carrying around the glove and Henry sees him and he's like, hey, what's that glove? And he's like, oh, this glove is from some dickhead that I was fighting with last night. And we are gonna tofu so hard after this. Don't, no, no, no. <laughs> Don't bring tofu back into this. <laughs> I'm gonna bring it up as much as I can. I know. Because I know that you hate it. Um, and and I'm going to fight this a-hole that I swapped gloves with and he has my glove too. And as soon as I see him with my glove, yeah, we're going to kill each other and stuff, even though we made it out of this battle alive. Yeah, like I didn't want to die, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go fight someone. I'm going to double my chances of dying. Double it and give it to the next person. Henry's like, ah, you mean this glove? And he like produces the glove from his pants. And <laughs> Williams is like, oh no. Oh no, no. I said it like the most treasonous things I could say about the king to his face. And he's in a pissy mood right now, so that's not good. Yeah. So he thinks he's gonna die. Yeah. And then Henry kind of just brushes it off. He's like, you know what? Have some gold, man. Here's some gold. Forget about it. Forget about it. I'm a good guy. Tell your friends. Yeah. Almost like, would we say, the New Testament God after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Forgive 
forgiving the sins. Forgiving the sins of the believers? Of the non-believers. This is very fun to do. And the non-believers, I guess. Yeah, he's kind of like that Thomas guy. Yeah, one of the apostles, the disciples. I don't know what you guys call them in English. Apostles. Okay, yeah, so there's like 12 of them. Yeah. And one of them is named Thomas. And he was all like, I don't believe in miracles <laughs> until I see him. And then he saw one and he was like, I don't believe in miracles. <laughs> I believe in miracles. <laughs> that blasphemy. I'm having a huge stroke. Anyway, powering through. Then we are like, <laughs> that was a funny scene. Ha ha ha. Did you all get your kicks in? Grand moment again. So a messenger comes up to Henry and is like, here is the death count. The death count is there are 10,000 French people who died. Zimil. Quite a bit. They're mostly nobles. We care about their lives more because their lives have more value because they're rich. Rich, rich. On the English side, only 29 people died. And only two of them were nobles. So most of them, we don't care about their lives that much because they weren't rich. Yeah. So Henry's like, wow, this must be an act of God. Have you ever seen a battle with such a disparity? <laughs> I looked up the actual death count for this because I'm like, there's there's no way. Yeah. It's just, no. Um, the actual death count at the Battle of Agincourt was estimated to be 6,000 French and 400 English. So like a really big disparity still, like more than 10 times the number of French people died. Not more than like 50,000, <laughs> like in the play. I have... Of 6,000 French, of which 2,000 were captured on top of that, and then up to 600 Englishmen. Cool. So, like, still a lot. Like, 10 times as many. Yeah. So we're done. We're done the Battle of Agincourt. Whoa, we get to go home. The chorus pops back up for Act 5, baby. Yes. Can I... Do you want to tell what it does? We're in the home stretch. I'm going to tell you what it does. So the chorus tells us that Henry went home. He was very humble. He didn't want a big parade or nothing. Some time has passed and we're back in France. Go ahead. Okay, so the chorus here holds the office of historian, as shown in Act 5. This is where we're at. His discussion of those who have not yet read the story is not necessarily as those of us who wish to read the ending without reading the play. No, this refers to those who haven't read Hollinshed's chronicles about Henry V. He is recounting the background that is needed to understand what we need to know, and also informing us of all discrepancies in travel and time between scenes and battles. Basically, he's like, okay, let me set the scene. That's literally his job. Um, this is necessary because like, you know, time frame of the play is a very long narrative length. So he leads us around England and France and the chorus fills in the historical gaps. Not to mention that the chorus steps through the bounds of time from the historical time of the play setting into the present time of the play where it's put on. But more on that later. More on that later. Have fun. So I've been skipping a lot of the like Pistol Fluellen drama, but suffice to say Pistol's very pissed off. Pistol pissed off. That Fluellen. Hotspur a hothead. What? Whoa. Wild. Um, that Fluellen executed Bardolf. He's not pleased. So we have a scene where they fight about Pistol making fun of Welsh accents because Fluellen has a Welsh accent. And then we learn that Pistol's wife, Mistress Quickly, has died of syphilis back home. And now he has nowhere to live and he's gonna be a thief again. Did you almost do a spit take on your carpet? I almost did a spit take at the brothel mistress getting syphilis. Oh. Oh, that's sad. But also, like, of course she died of syphilis. So sad before they invented condoms. Be safe, y'all. And antibiotics. And antibiotics. 
If only she had eaten some moldy bread. Mm-hmm. Anyway, well, that was sad, and I don't know why we needed to know it. By the way, like, the last play, she was being carted off to jail. I don't know where that went. Pistol was like, I'm a... Maybe that's where she saw Pistol. Maybe he broke her out of jail. Yeah. Do you think Pistol's hot? Do I think he's hot? Yeah. No. Like, do you think he's a pistol? <laughs> is that is that a slang word? Is that what the kids are saying these days? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Do you think it's because he's quick to the draw? I think it's because he loves fighting people. Mm. Okay. So Henry and Charles are meeting to negotiate a peace. Ugh, Charles. Henry won the war, which means that he should be able to take over the throne of France by force. But he's not going to do that. What he wants to do is marry Catherine so that his heirs will rule both France and England. If you think this sounds a lot like the deal that was offered before all the people died, you would be absolutely correct. It's pretty much exactly the same deal that was offered before all those people died. This entire war could have been an email. This entire war could have been an email. And maybe like a team's call just to like iron out some details, but like... Yeah, yeah. Nobody needed to be in the office. (laughs) So uh, everyone leaves except Henry and Catherine and her maid. And so Henry tries to convince Catherine to marry him. Her maid is translating and they're like talking about kissing and stuff. And she's like, oh, that's simply not done in France. Then she's like, you know what? Sure. But my dad has to say ditto to it, you know? And so they all come in. They're like, yep, all good to go on the deal that we offered you before you killed 10,000 of our people. Love that for us. Let's sign the treaty. You guys can get married. Your sons are going to inherit the throne. Done. Bada bing, bada boom. That is the end of the play. So finally, the epilogue. Okay, go. Which is a sonnet. In discussing the author, we kind of get to the point of the course that it's there to compensate in a way for his unable pen. That all the fragmented storytelling that has had to be repacked up by the course was due to the author of the work, Shaky, being ill-equipped to tell the story. In the end, the chorus asks of the audience to accept the play and give it a favor. That is like, please give us a good review. Five stars. <laughs> wherever you get your podcast. Like and subscribe. To get our merch on Redbubble. Because the chorus is uh, trying his best to keep reminding us that even through the flaws, this is still a good retelling of history. Cool. Now, I have a question that we don't need to go through, but I would like you all to know that there is a version of this that doesn't have the chorus. <gasps> Gasp! Yeah. What's your question? In a weird attempt to uh, censor the play, the chorus as a character and all of its speeches were removed. Some scholar believe it to be part because the fifth act of the chorus, uh, there's a reference to the Earl of Essex. If you remember him, he's the guy who almost usurped the queen, like in actual time. Somebody tried to usurp the queen Elizabeth. So, Ooh, drama. Yeah. Um, so they uh, they removed that because it was a bad time in contemporary time. So yeah, it's interesting. I think you can't take out the chorus. The chorus needs to be there or else the play doesn't stand. I agree. There's a lot of parts where you would need to have like several scenes to explain what's going on that the chorus is like, this is what's going on in a couple lines. There you go. Have at it, my friend. Yeah. I think maybe it's because um, like he knew he had already split up Henry the Fourth into two plays. He knew he was going to split up Henry the Sixth into three plays. And he was like, this story is super epic and I don't want people to like have to maintain that amount of excitement over multiple plays. So let's just smoosh it. But I think also like there's no real spot to break it up when you think about it. Like this episode. Yep. Cool. Well, that was a very good analysis of the course and I have extra analysis of the God thing. 
Okay, so I already said basically all of what my seminar was, but I have some like potential essay ideas for you if you want to do an essay on Henry V. That is the listeners, not me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you the listener. Or if you're just like interested in Falstaff again, everyone seems to really like Falstaff. So last time we joked about Falstaff being Jesus coming back from the dead because he pretended to die in a battle and then was alive. Yeah. But then since we know that they also made Henry Christ-like in this place, Maybe it's not a joke. And maybe we should revisit this. So I have a new theory that I've just come up with. Okay. That Falstaff is a foil to Henry. Okay. And I think there are two routes you can go with this. Have at it. All right. Number one, he comes back from the dead, but it's like a fake coming back from the dead. Mm -hmm. Like the Antichrist, perhaps? Is Falstaff the Antichrist? He actually dies after, so he wasn't like the true Christ. And like Henry actually walks among the people like Christ. So he's more Christ-like. We don't see Henry die, but we do see Falstaff die. So Henry in this play and in this series really lives forever. He he doesn't actually live forever. He dies in his early 30s. He dies three years after the timeline of this play. But Shakespeare doesn't set the play then and he doesn't show that. And I think that there's a reason for doing that to make Henry seem eternal and strong. Mm. I have something to add on that. Okay. I think also Falstaff is a bit of a false king. Okay. Run with that. <laughs> No, um, <laughs> because okay, he's a bit of a pompous asshole. Like he thinks he's greater than he is, mm -hmm. and he thinks that he kills Hotspur, which he didn't. Yeah, and like the self-importance, I think. And once I think Henry realizes that, that's why he exiles him. But you know, I think you're jumping ahead to my next point. Actually, God, I'm sorry. That's fine. It was a good segue. <laughs> Are we Silicon Valley tech execs? Because we sure know how to ride a Segway. So Falstaff also acts as like the tempter of Henry. Some would say like the devil is Falstaff the devil. <laughs> so the devil is like the great liar. Yeah. He's like the grand deceiver. Ah, yes. You mentioned that Falstaff is deceptive. He lies all the time. Yeah. He does nothing but tell lies. He has false in his name. And the staff is a thing of power. Like an angel would have. <laughs> also, yes. Good. The devil is also a fallen angel. Fall. <laughs> Fall is in Falstaff's name. He was a sir. He was a knight. He was maybe once chivalrous, but he has been a fallen knight. So. Oh, and like Lucifer canonically is like Michael's brother. And then there's the whole like battle for who's the best angel. And that's a thing that we could also explore if we weren't having a heat stroke. Yeah, that's a thing that someone somewhere could explore in an essay if they so desired. Yeah. So that was, yeah, I think that was my analysis of this play. I like it. So I have a rating scale for you. Oh. Would you like to hear the rating scale? Yeah. On a scale of being 10,000 dead Frenchmen to being one quarter of an English army that miraculously makes it out almost unscathed, how would you write this play? Catherine. Why? <laughs> So, like, it's very good, and she seems to be getting a very good deal out of this, you know? Okay. But also, it's fucking long, and the adaptations are, like, overly serious sometimes. And, like, you know, she's still getting married off by her dad. So, that's kind of what it is. So, it's, like, medium rare for you. Yeah. Well, it's a bit it's a bit more than medium rare, which is not rare or well done. It just is. Okay. It's, if it's a number, it's, like, an 8. Okay. Like, an 8 out of 13, which is the highest score on this scale of 1 to 13. It's a bell curve. It goes up and then back down. Yep. <laughs> 
I'm so um, warm. You're like, why did I even start a podcast with you if you were going to do this? Because we started in November and it was cold. <laughs> I would rate this play like the three quarters of the army that stays back in England and gets to sit on their laurels for those 14 years because they seem like they're having a grand time. They seem like they're just sitting back and relaxing. And I am sitting back and relaxing and enjoying this play because this is one of my favorite plays in the Henriade. This and Richard III are my two favorite plays in the Henriade. I really like it. I really like the adaptations of it. A lot of the lines are very interesting. You can play Henry, Harry Hal like he is Rowdy Hal, just like a little reformed. Or you can play him like a very noble king. I think there's a lot you can do with his character yeah. and you know that I love like a dramatic adaptation. Yeah, I think that's why I rated it like a Catherine because like she's getting like a good deal in the sense of like becoming Queen of England, kind of nice but also I think being married off, not the greatest because there are some very bad adaptations sometimes. That's fair, yeah. Like anything by the BBC. Fuck! <laughs> well, I think The Hollow Crown is by the BBC or is it by ITV? Oh, I don't know. But like the 70s adaptation of this play is fucking horrendous terrible don't watch that cool well that was fun thank you for joining me on this journey amy i hope that you can like take a cold shower after this and stay cool that's the plan so thank you to all our new listeners sorry if this was the first episode you listened to but welcome for the ride wait i have an announcement announce if you haven't listened to it yet we did two episodes on city of bones by cassandra clare on words about books so please listen to that as well so thank you for listening if you like this episode please follow us us on Twitter and Instagram at UnsightedPod and just chat to us. Let us know what you think of this play and the rest of the plays. We love to hear your thoughts as always and we'll see you in two weeks. And as always, we're excited. Unavailable. But like seriously, his last name is Baldick.